Okay. Good to see you guys. Uh, I'm glad you're here. My name is Mark Lamas. Uh, obviously, I am American. Yes. I've taught here uh, a couple times now. Um, last time I taught, I think uh, uh, David asked me to teach on hell. Was anybody here when I did that? Jerk. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, oh, can you teach on, you know, Abraham sacrificing Isaac? Awesome. Okay. So, so it seems like that's a theme. So I'm sure next time I'll be teaching on polygamy or something, I'm sure. Um, so <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I've been living in Edinburgh for, for a couple years now, and I really, really enjoy it. And I thank you guys for being good. I, I do actually, uh, I don't like this time of year when there's so many people around, but, but um, I look at it as a very, it's very, uh, uh, negative point of view because I think, I think it's a good thing. There's so many people who are here who, who maybe uh, don't know Jesus, who maybe, who maybe are here for the first time. And for, for those of you who are here for Fringe or things like that, I welcome you and that's, that's awesome that you're here. Um, Genesis uh, 22. Uh, this is a very graphic uh, uh, image here and, and I did that on purpose, but, but Genesis 22 is one of those biblical narratives um, that challenge our, our modern sensibilities and, and it brings us to the brink of calling God's very nature into, exi- uh, uh, into question, right? It makes us wonder what kind of God this is. It makes us wonder what kind of God would gamble with the life of a child for the sake of a test. Is this God in heaven frying us with his proverbial magnifying glass like ants on the ground, Right? Genesis 22 also calls Abraham into question. Throughout the Bible, Abraham is presented as as this this father of faith. He he is the friend of God. How could a man willing to slit the throat of his child be considered anything but sadistic? And for centuries, modern minds have, have... tried to make sense of of this difficult narrative, this difficult story. The Danish philosopher, and he's also a Christian, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote a a work called Fear and Trembling, uh, and and it talks about Genesis 22, and in it, what he tries to do is he tries to lighten the shock of the narrative by claiming this. He says, Abraham climbed the mountain, and even at the instance when the knife glittered, he believed that God would not require Isaac. And here you can sort of see what Kierkegaard is wanting to do, right? He wants to insert Abraham's inner feelings, his thought processes, a development that is actually absent in the narrative itself. And he does this to be able to make the story just a little bit more palatable. And other interpreters have taken a bit of a harsher tone, right? There's a social anthropologist, uh, Carol Delaney, and she once remarked, she said, I don't, see why the will- I don't see why the willingness to kill a child should be considered a test of piety and the example of it. Both the tendency by interpreters to either explain away the difficulties or to condemn them, condemn them outright, it has created a deepening confusion for Christians. 
And how we might understand this portion of the Bible, how we might actually apply those things, that, that story to our lives, to ourselves. And I'm sure many of you guys uh, here have heard this text preached before. If you had a good pastor, he just avoided it. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I'm sure you've heard this preached before from many different angles. And the truth is, the way that this, this text is set up is that you can come at it for, from another, a number of different angles. And, and before service, uh, Libby was talking about this very thing. She was saying, I feel like I could have just talked about this for several weeks. And, and it's true. You could have talked about this. You could talk about this forever because there's so many different entrances into this text. And it is so alive and so uh, meaningful but my hope tonight is to be able to show that by understanding the biblical context, and even though we have all this mess in the background, I want to be able to show that understanding the biblical t- context, which the story is situated in, that we can discover its meaning and its purpose for us as its readers. I want to first actually tackle the problem of child sacrifice. And, and, and this is something that I was not going to do but I thought, if I were sitting in, in the audience or whatever you guys are called, um, <laughs> if I was sitting there, I would be bugged the whole time about the child being sacrificed and then this dude's going to go off and try and tell me about, you know, faith and blah, blah, blah. So you guys good to tackle uh, uh, child sacrifice first? Okay, good. It's your fault, dude. <laughs> um, and, and then after this, what I want to do is I want us to be able to focus our attention uh, on, on Genesis 22 itself. And, and I want to show how from Abraham to Jesus, God has been calling humanity to follow the narrow and the difficult road. And again, this is sort of what Dave was talking about, about the paradox, that, that the God who has, has every, has, needs nothing asks for everything from us, okay? But first things first. Um, in order to tackle the problem of child sacrifice, we need to be able to ask ourselves this question. What does Genesis 22 attempt to accomplish? And the answer, as I said before, is many things. Um, but among the obvious, the narrative attempts to tell an exemplary story. And what I mean by that is that, is that Abraham is supposed to serve as an example to us, the readers, He's supposed to be an example that we as the readers are to emulate. He's doing something good. He's a hero of the faith for a reason. And for, for, for Genesis 22, Abraham's story is about faithful obedience in the face of difficulty. But however, before we, we move on and, and before we, we look at this sort of surface reading, Genesis 22 also has a, loaded, has a loaded religious significance that I think we have to talk about. And there's a few things that we need to understand about, one, the book of Genesis in particular, but also the Bible in general. Genesis. Most of us would say, oh yeah, we believe that Genesis is actually probably the first book that's written that was, that was compiled and put in the Bible, right? That's actually not true. Genesis, though it's chronologically first, was not the earliest book written, okay? In fact, much of Genesis was, was written much later after the establishment of uh, Judaism itself, after, after um, the temple was already in place, it was, it was already after religious sacrifice was in place. Genesis then is often told from a very specific angle. It's told from an Israelite angle. 
The story of Abraham actually takes place before Israel becomes a thing, becomes a people, right? So, so here what we have is that there's all this established uh, religion and now those people are writing about Abraham two millennia before. Make sense? Good. So what you have is that you have these authors and what they're doing is that they're trying to explain the origins of their religion and their religious practices within these stories. So in our narrative, the author is hoping to first establish a link between sacrifice and Jerusalem because Jerusalem is important because it's the center. It's the epicenter of the Jewish world. This is where sacrifice takes place. This is where religious, religiousness goes on. It is the center of the world for Jews. So what the author in Genesis 22 is trying to do is make that link between sacrifice and Jerusalem. And he does that, and I say he on purpose because women didn't write back then, unfortunately, because then these books would be so much better. (laughs) That's terrible to say. Um, That'll be one of my many uh, heretical things coming out of my mouth tonight. So this connection, though, is made clear Uh, by the author's use of the word Moriah, okay? When it talked about the region of Moriah as the location of of Isaac's sacrifice in Genesis 22. You can see here, it says the region of Moriah. This is where the sacrifice takes place. And in in 2 Chronicles 3.1, Moriah is the location of the temple in Jerusalem. Make sense? So now what the connection is trying to do here is he's trying to, he's trying to show how sacrifice was started. Sacrifice for them then didn't start uh, with, this, with, with this initiation at some later point. It was as early as Abraham. You had sacrifices happening in Jerusalem. It's legitimizing the Jewish religion. Make sense? Good? Yeah? Okay. Um, secondly, the writers of the Hebrew Bible They lived within a specific uh, social context, and they wrote their narratives according to that context, okay? And Genesis is one of those books that unless we understand the social and the religious context, then it's very difficult to get a proper reading of that book, and, and so, so Genesis is written against competing views of the day, of religious views and social views, And Abraham lived within a context in which other religions and other social groups believed that that child sacrifice was actually the norm, okay? The author of Genesis, what he's doing is that he's playing on this idea to show how Judaism sits distinctly from their religious neighbors, that they are separated from those religions. They are different than those religions who actually agree to child sacrifice. And he says, we actually don't. If you notice, it is the animal, that is the ram, that becomes the object of sacrifice and not Isaac. If you see verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And if you notice, in Israel, in Israelite history, 
It is only animals that are sacrificed throughout Israel's history, not children. And this is important to remember why the author is setting up the narrative the way that he is. He's not doing it to, to, to give a thumbs up to child sacrifice. In fact, quite the opposite. He's saying, we are distinct from the other religions that practice child sacrifice, and we don't. And this is the origins of why we do not practice child sacrifice. And so rather than it being a, a, a positive example, it's a very negative one. And it's funny because I think that the author himself finds this story and this narrative quite as absurd as any of us do. He finds his own narrative absurd, absurd um, because he lightens, lightens the blow by beginning the narrative with, and God tested Abraham. As, as readers, we're actually privy to information that Abraham is not. We know that this is just merely a test and that God will not have the boy be harmed. At the same time, the test is very real for Abraham. He's not privy to the same information that we are, but this actually heightens the plot for us. And the author prepares us for Abraham to act faithfully to God's test. He does this by using the phrase, here I am. And this is a very popular phrase in the Old Testament. Uh, this was used for figures when they received their call from God. And so in Exodus 3, 4, this is actually the very same response that Moses gives to God when God calls him uh, uh, with the episode of the burning bush. Moses says, here I am. This is the same thing that happens with Samuel. This is the same thing that happens with Isaiah. This is the same thing that happens with God himself, who when he's saying, look, it, I'm, I'm looking for anybody, I'm searching out anybody who will come find me, he says, here I am, here I am. This is the exact same language. The author is setting us up, not for a failure, but for a success. Abraham is going to do the right thing. Abraham is ready for God's test. And what's interesting is that God's test is only resolved. You have all of this tension for, for 11 verses. From verse 1, the test does not find resolution until verse 12, with Abraham being recognized as the one who fears God. If you notice, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And then you jump down to verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy uh, he said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And that the language there, it, it's you are a fearer of God. It's not just one, one time that he does this, but it's a continual. This is something that's regular, that he is continually a fearer of God. Um, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The connection between this idea of testing and the result being the fear of God, is a very, very important one. The two words, testing, in the Hebrew, it's nasah, and the fear of God, yireh Elohim, it's a very, um, these two words are, are, well, Elohim is just the regular for God, um, and you have nasah, which is a very uh, rare word to be used in the way that it's being used, uh, but you have these two words 
in only one place in the Hebrew Bible where they're used together, and it's in Exodus 20, 20. And it says this, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, again, Nassau, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is the part of the story of Exodus where Moses uh, is waiting for the Ten Commandments to be given and he's with the people and they're fearful, they're scared uh, because the cloud, the, the heaviness of God has come upon them. And, and here, um, uh, this is the, this is the, the pinnacle moment for, for Jews, for Israel, because the Ten Commandments are the heart of what they believe and what they are. What, uh, what who, how, they, how they become obedient Jews, right? Um, and, and if you remember, I said, I said a little bit earlier that the stories in Genesis were written later, right? And, and typically told from an is, uh, Israelite perspective. The Ten Commandments are, are likely already in place by the time that Genesis 22 is being written. And the story of Abraham is being written down after the Ten Commandments are already written. So what I think the author of Genesis 22 is doing by connecting the concepts of testing and fearing God like we find in Exodus 20.20, what he does is I think he hopes to have readers recall the Ten Commandments in their minds. And the author of Genesis 22 presents Abraham as the perfect model, the example for Israel to emulate to follow the Ten Commandments properly. And Abraham perfectly then embodies Judaism's religious devotion. And what's interesting to me is that one verse later, in Exodus 20, 22 through 23, God commands this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. And this is the big one, right? The very first commandment. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. This is the, you shall have no gods beside me. There's one God, that's it. That's, what, that's, that's the first commandment. This is a prohibition against idols. And what I think that the author in Genesis 22 is doing is he's trying to bring us to that. He's trying to, to bring that to the minds of the readers who are hearing this story. And when they see Abraham doing that, they're supposed to think, ah, oh, the Ten Commandments, Abraham is, is doing it correctly. But I believe Genesis 22 also is concerned with the same things that Exodus 20, 20 is concerned with, and that is idol worship. And let me explain what I mean, because this can be... Confusing, maybe. <laughs> With any good story that we read, we read left, left to right. I was thinking Hebrew, and so I was thinking right to left. We don't do that normally. <laughs> so we, we, we read left to right, correct? What came before in the story is always going to inform us what comes next in the story. And Genesis 22 is no exception. Abraham's story actually begins in Genesis 12. 
But Genesis 22, interestingly enough, is the very last time that we have a dialogue happening between God and Abraham. And Genesis 12 is the very first time that we have Abraham and God talking. So you have this, 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 uh, these bookmarks formed around Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. And what that does is that gives us a little bit of a nudge from the author to say, hey, you have to understand Genesis 22 by looking at the big chunk of narrative that we got here from chapter 12 to chapter 22, okay? And so what the author does is he compels us, he compels us to envision and to recall the story of Abram and Sarai, right, from, from uh, Genesis 12. The poor old couple who, who in their, their long lives were unable to have children. And I and, and, I can imagine how difficult this is. Um, I've been working in the, in the uh, Royal Infirmary as, as a chaplain now uh, for a couple, a uh, oh, month and a half or so. And, and I'm just, every single day, it seems like we're dealing with a family who has lost a baby almost every single time I go in. And I sit next to these, these uh, men and these women and, and I just watch as they are just absolutely crushed at the loss of a child, at the loss of their first child or their fifth child, and just absolutely crushed. And I could imagine the continual pain that you would feel desiring to have a child and continuing to see no results or to see failure over and over and over. And for for Abram and for Sarah, this, is, this, is, this inability to be able to produce offspring was, was the ultimate, in a sense, of social shame. Um, it was also a death sentence for the family themselves. Uh, they would, they would, the name would die with the last living person, right? And, and you lose this sense of, of what it means. And I guess it's very hard to sort of articulate in our culture where, where this isn't as important, but there's this sense of honor and there's this sense of, of, of just this deep sense of, of worth that is associated with having your name live on. And here they can't find that sort of, that sense of honor. They just continue to find this shame. But one day this, this God comes to him. And, and it actually tells us that Abram is from, from the Ur of Shondalins, which is, which is uh, uh, one of the worlds that, that I was talking about that has these gods that are, that are very harsh and very mean. And, um, and here you have Abram who's coming from that and he realizes there is this God and this God shows his greatness to him by, by, getting, uh, by giving uh, them a, a family, giving them a son, this son Isaac, and this God promises his son Isaac and says, Abram, check it out. You are going to be blessed. You're going to have descendants that are going to be as numerous as the stars, which is, which is absolutely, absolutely amazing. And you see, even the episode where, where Abram, which literally means the father is exalted, he gets his name changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. This even reflects, the name change even reflects the calling and the promise that God has given him. Isaac is not only, he's not only dear to Abraham, but he is the very key that actually unlocks Abraham's future. 
It is on Isaac that every hope and every single dream of Abraham rests. And the author, he hints to us uh, this, this in verse 2 with his repetition and his progression. He, it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. When it says your son, your only son, what this is is that this is a reminder to the readers that Isaac is the only one to which God's promises can actually come true. It is only through Isaac. And then you notice the author adds in, he says, whom you love. And what that does is it reminds us, readers, of the emotional attachment that Abraham actually feels towards his child. Because we like to sometimes think of the story as if Abraham is this beast of a man and he's fine with just going up to this innocent child and just slitting his throat. But here you have this sense of affection that we don't find anywhere else in the story. It is this love and this deep, deep emotion. Abraham isn't just some religious fanatic. In fact, in verse 5, this may be a hint that Abraham actually feels a deep sense of guilt. It reads, And Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then, he will, and then we will come back to you. What's interesting is that I think that Abraham is actually lying here. Okay? He's lying to his servants. As readers, we know that he is telling a lie since the narrator has already told us who the sacrifice will be. It's going to be Isaac, as it said in verse 2. Think about this now. Abraham then is genuinely wrestling between the love of his child and between the love of his God. He is genuinely wrestling. And though this narrative is extreme, it is done so purposely to exploit the moral of the story, right? Which is this. Full obedience to God requires ultimate allegiance to God. And anything distorting this truth is an idol. Full obedience to God requires ultimate allegiance to God. And anything that distorts that truth is an idol. And even when we, when we, we see the, that these promises are from God for Abraham, they can still become idols. That's one of the wackiest parts when I was reading this, is that Abraham is looking to his son as an idol, yet his son is the very gift that God gave him. When we love the gift more than the giver, we've created an idol. And when we feel threatened by God's encroachment on the things that we love, then we have also created an idol. And God always, always challenges idols. And he smashes the idols of our lives. And he kills the idols of our lives. And Abraham, his case is no different. And the path with God is never easy. It is not easy. Because it calls into question every single thing that we cherish and love. 
It asks whether those things we have, the things we desire, bring us closer to God or if they have become our gods. And for Abraham, Isaac had become his hope rather than God. And this story puts Abraham back in check and reminds him of where his hope really lies, in God, not in Isaac. And as, I, as Abraham, as he recognized the road to live faithfully an obedient life towards God, he saw that it was difficult. In the same way, Jesus' task is no more easy. It is not easier by any means. I just simply think of the call that Jesus does for his disciples. And he tells them to leave everything behind. They literally jump out of their boat, literally leaving their jobs. If you guys left your jobs, people, you, if you got advice from people from the church who were like, you know, hey, I'm thinking about leaving my job. And, you know, what? You're stupid. Don't do that. Don't leave your job. That's craziness. Here, Jesus says, leave your job. Leave your family, come follow me, this crazy, homeless, Jewish peasant who means nothing in the scheme of the world, and hey, we're going to start a revolution, and there's two, three, four of us here, cool. It's craziness. And then on top of that, then they start walking with this guy, talking with this guy. They see, okay, he does some cool stuff. Dude can walk on water. That's kind of crazy. That's cool. But now he starts talking about the hard stuff, right? Now he starts talking about these crazy things. He's saying, now you have to live a life that is so backwards and upside down from the way that everything that you've learned before makes no sense anymore. When somebody slaps you, you turn the other cheek. What? Because I'm about to headbutt them, right? When somebody hates you and persecutes you, you love them. What? That's crazy. And then he gets even crazier. Because he says, then if you really, really, really want to live and have life, do you know the way you do that? You die. All right, Jesus, what are you smoking, bro? Because, I mean, because this gets crazy, right? And he pushes it even farther and farther and further. I mean, it just goes, he's mad. But this is, this is how crazy it is. This is how difficult it is. It is not an easily traveled road. It is a difficult road. But he always promises to be with us like he is with Abraham. What, what Jesus does is he puts everything into perspective and challenges all of those ideals and those ideas that we thought were best. He challenges every single idol that we would ever have in our life. Hmm. I remember when I, when I first became a Christian, I, I became a Christian when I was 17. And if you could imagine, um, I was a hardcore skateboarder, punk rock kid, uh, a little skate rat who just went on the streets. I beat up people. I was a punk, always in trouble with the police. Um, but I became a Christian when I was 17. And, and, and before that, I had started skateboarding when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I love skateboarding. If you've ever known a skateboarder, like skateboarding is life. And if you tell them anything else, they will punch you, right? 
skateboarding was, was my life. I didn't just skate for, for recreation, though. I actually was in competitions, and I skated, and I hoped to be a professional. I became a, I became a Christian, and one of the very first things that I heard, I literally, I didn't literally hear, that's figurative speech, but I, I, I felt that God was urging me to quit skateboarding. And, and this may seem very insignificant in comparison to God saying, hey, kill your son. But... <laughs> But when I, was, when I was thinking about this, this is one of the most sort of pivotal moments in my, in my life as a young teenager who had just come to faith. And, and I, remember, I, I remember telling God, no, like, I love skateboarding. Like, this is everything to me. And, and, uh, and I went out one night, and I was skateboarding. And this is after I told this to God. And, and I just, I, I remember just waking up all of a sudden. And, um, and my, my pinky had fallen all the way back to, it was literally broken back to the back of my, my arm, and my nose was, <laughs> was broken. Um, and I just remember waking up, and I had uh, actually, I had fallen, and I had slid across the concrete, and my, my uh, teeth had, had, yeah, I know, this is a great image for you guys, right? And my teeth had literally grinded across the, the uh, concrete, and I and I fell this way, but my mo- momentum was going this way. I broke my pinky, uh, uh, and then I broke my nose, and then I had really messed up my teeth. And I remember stopping skateboarding after that. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I just went. And it just doesn't mean that I, I'm saying God made me fall and like put his like foot out and and I ate it, you know. But but. Um, what I am saying is that God will challenge those, those idols that you put in your life. And, and I remember thinking, like, part of the reason I didn't want to stop skateboarding because I thought that I would never get it back again. And when I turned 18, um, I, I met my wife. We, we got married. We opened up um, uh, this, this youth center for these at-risk kids. And this youth center ran uh, for 10 years, right up until the time, uh, the month before we moved here. And this youth center served 400 kids on a, on a weekly basis. Tons of kids coming. And what we ran is we had, we had hip-hop dancing. We had uh, punk rock bands. We had a full-blown skate park that me and a friend had built. And we just let all of these street kids come in and just enjoy a safe place to be around and a consistent people who were in their lives. And, and I, I think about it, I'm like, that was so much better than just getting my skateboard and God had a vision, uh, such a bigger vision than I did. And my pity party to say, God, I just don't want to give this up. But he came and he smashed that idol. And he said, this idol sucks compared to what I bring you. And it was true. And I think that there's so many of us in here that sometimes we put our hope in money, success, relationships, approval, or even religion And we need to ask ourselves, where have we turned these gifts that God has given us into our hope rather than letting God himself be our hope? What are those idols in our lives that need to get smashed, that need to get killed? Because God will kill it, confront it, and kill it for you. And when we kill those idols, we can see the fullness of the blessing that comes just like Abraham did. We can see that fullness on a regular basis.